This episode is brought to you by Trainer Road, cycling's most effective training tool. Pair your power meter or use virtual power with over 800 workouts and 80 training plans to make you a faster cyclist. Visit trainerroad.com forward slash SPC to try Trainer Road risk-free for 30 days. If you're an aspiring pro cyclist looking for a contract, where would you turn? Especially if you had no contacts with the professional cycling world. The first place you might turn is your cycling buddies. Or if not them, then maybe your coach or your team manager. Or even the one pro or ex-pro rider in your local club. But what if all of these came up short? Or even worse, what if you started with none of these and you still got a pro contract two years after your first race. This is not only possible, but 23-year-old Melbourne cyclist Brendan Canty has done it, and today we find out how. I'm Damien Roos, and the show today is the story of how Brendan Canty got a pro contract with pro-continental team Drapak Pro Cycling. And apart from his obvious ability, it's a story about how Brendan's success is a result of social connectivity through social media such as Strava, Instagram, and Twitter. It's also a story about the consequence of the technology we embrace and how cycling is no less affected by this. Cycling. This is Threshold, a show about finding the edge. When we're talking about Brendan Canty's short cycling career, it's hard to know where to start. So let's start with his last race. On attack from Alejandro Valverde with just less than seven kilometers to go. It's already been reeled in, but it's done a lot of damage. The German champion, tired out, jersey open, Bookman has gone, as has Philippe Gilbert with Sin Carlos Verona of Edix Quickstep also distanced. A few big names going. Ulissi, amazingly, still in this group as well for Lampre Merida. He's a guy that they'll want to distance. This is the final climb on stage three of the 2015 Abu Dhabi Tour. At 6.7 kilometres to go, there is a select group of riders that includes some big names and some not-so-big ones. There's Vincenzo Nibali, right on his wheel, Esteban Chavez. Canti is the rider from Drapak, by the way. You can make out Brendan because he's the only one in the group wearing Drapak Pro Cycling's distinct red jersey. He went on to finish 14th on the stage and 13th overall in the Abu Dhabi Tour. This effort earned him a contract with Drapak Pro Cycling for two years. Of course, it was more than just this effort. And apart from his obvious ability, I'm here to convince you that social media played a tangible role in guiding Canty from university student slash runner to pro cyclist in two short years. How, you ask? Let's start with Strava. Cycling's own social media platform. Uh, 
After putting more time into his cycling over the summer of 2012-13, he started using Strava more and more, which led him to his first meaningful interaction. Now, that may sound like a big claim, but I have no doubt it started the series of events that led him to where he is today. The reason why I met met the bunch was through somebody that contacted me through Strava and I think he wrote a comment saying, oh, you know, should, you should come down and do the bunch ride. It was this bunch ride, the Peak Cycles shop ride in Melbourne, Australia, that Canty was convinced to do his first event and then his first race. Their, their aim for the year or the big thing for the Peak Cycles is the Grand Fondo, so I did that and I did well there and then that led to guys saying, oh, look, you should do a road race and the next one was Stratford to Dargo and all kind of took off once I won that, so... What exactly is taking off in Brendan's case? At first, it was attention. For example, attention from an ex-pro that came in the form of a tweet. I've read a quote from ex-pro Jonathan Lovelock saying, is there a way to track how many people have stalked your Strava account? Because he said he was guilty of checking you out after that race, and I'm sure many people were. That tweet from Jonathan Lovelock, it was quite humorous, and I suppose... He wrote that because not many people would have known who I was and, and that was my first road race that I'd ever done and to take out the win in A grade, everyone's going, who's this guy? And um, and and then they could see on my Strava that I've actually logged quite a few rides and, and I was during the winter riding with Peak Cycles and doing the Grand Fondo and even that, a little bit of riding over the summer while I was still doing some running. It wasn't just attention from ex-pros, but National Road Series teams in Australia were quickly in contact. How quick? As quick as technology these days allows. I won the race and that that afternoon I had two teams from the NRS contact me and then a third the following day. So immediately I had three teams from the NRS asking if I'd want to ride for them the following year. Brendan ended up signing with the health.com.au search to retain team for the 2014 season and went from riding around Melbourne to riding around Thailand. Thailand? I think it was maybe a month after doing Stratford Dargo, I'd signed with Search Retain and I was training in Thailand. So, I mean, that was pretty awesome. Spending over a week in, in Thailand, only a, a month after doing my first road race. I mean, that was pretty incredible. Did you put that training camp on Strava? Yes, I did. Everything everything I do is on Strava. And if it's not on Strava, it's because the file was corrupt. So everything. So there's no secret training happening in Brendan Canty's world? Absolutely not. I, I think I even, uh, well, I know I uploaded a walk up in Mansfield over the weekend. Um, but, you know, every single ergo that I do, every single ride, um, whether it's, you know, 30 minutes recovery or it's just, it's all up there. Now, I'm going to take a slight detour here because, for me, this raises an interesting point. Strava, like all social media, gives us, the user, a choice. A choice of what we share with the world, which has led to a whole new phenomenon called image crafting. I'm not sure if you're aware of this modern phenomenon directly, but indirectly, you might have experienced its repercussions. You know when you're the victim of image crafting, when you're consuming social media and you're feeling depressed about yourself because everyone else's life looks better than yours on the internet. So what's image crafting on Strava? It's selecting your strong rides, including the ones where you went and got a notable KOM. It's also, well, tell me if this sounds familiar. There's even guys, I mean... 
guys that I know that are at a really high level that post on Strava, but they won't post everything. But also sometimes they, they hide their heart rate data or their power data or something like that. So as you can hear, Strava is just as prone to image crafting as other forms of social media, such as Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, Tumblr, YouTube, etc. But Brendan doesn't do this. He chooses to put everything up on Strava. And for an aspiring pro to post everything, power, heart rate, warm-ups, cool-downs, indoor training sessions, when other writers might filter out certain metrics, it's either brave or stupid. So why does he do it? I've got no issue with, with letting everybody see what I'm doing. There's another reason he does this, though. Sharing his rides is one way of connecting to other riders and building support. And I think there's a lot of people that might follow me because they like to see my training or there's a lot of other people that might want to follow me because they like to see where I'm riding or I just think it's good having it all up there and, you know, I've got nothing to hide. I've got no issue with other competitors seeing what my training is and for um, everybody else out there, um, I, I think, you know, I'm more than happy to let them see what I'm doing. This led to Strava actually paying attention of not only his Strava account, but his entire online presence. And because of his entire package, they made Brendan a Strava influencer. Yeah, so Strava actually contacted me um, and said that they've been following my riding and and seeing that I've, I've got a really good reputation with people and, and I'm engaging and comment on people's rides and give kudos and reply to comments on my own ride and they noticed that I've got my own blog. I think they jumped on my Facebook and Twitter and just sussed everything out and they said that I fit the model of what Strava's trying to achieve in terms of having a really good reputation out on, you know, riding safe and and being friendly in a, in a positive environment. And they said, would you like to be an influencer for the following year? And absolutely, I said yes. Coming up, we get into the other side of social media, plus Brendan's run-in with the undisputed king of pro-cycling social media and the secret to a popular Instagram account. That's after these words from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Trainer Road, cycling's most effective training tool with over 800 workouts and 80 training plans. I asked Chad Timmerman, the coach that writes Trainer Road's training programs, what goes into the creation of Trainer Road's training plans? Uh, it, it's probably equal parts personal experience, um, coaching experience, uh, knowledge I acquire as I'm building the plans, and then uh, a fair amount of guinea pigging. When you talk guinea pigging what exactly are you referring to when i actually expose myself to the workouts that i'm expecting others to do so i can see you know what the demands are how, how miserable they are how effective they might be and so you're taking one for the team has there been any times where you've personally failed in your training because you've been off doing trainer road workouts to test them for everybody yeah, a couple of times I've followed newly developed plans in my run-up to Masters Nationals, and it's uh, 
uh, it, it cost me. My performance was uh, lackluster at best, but you know, anything to make everybody else faster. Trainer Road, cycling's most effective training tool that does what it's designed to do, make you a faster cyclist because the workouts are personally tested by the guy that writes them. But don't take my word for it. Visit trainerroad.com forward slash SPC. That's trainerroad.com forward slash SPC to try Trainer Road for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Welcome back to Threshold. I'm Damien Roos, and so far in the show, pro cyclist Brendan Canty and I have been speaking about social media. But we've only spoken about the influence of Strava on his cycling career. Social media doesn't stop at Strava, though. Brendan knows this and is fully emerged in the social media world. He's active on all major platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Plus, he also has a blog. Being on social media and doing well in it, as we're starting to see, has really benefited him. So what's his strategy behind this? I think it is really important and your own personal branding and, and reputation is is crucial because there's a lot of cyclists out there that I think are of similar ability. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got to become valuable for, for your sponsors and your team, not only in results, but also the way you behave off the bike, the way you engage with um, spectators and, and supporters and the like. As Brendan says, it's all about personal branding, not just for your own gain, but also your teams. Just to spell it out here, when I'm talking branding, I'm talking about thinking of your brand as what people say about you when you're not there. What I've heard from others behind Brendan's back, don't worry, Brendan, it's all good, is that he's a man of the people. And no doubt, social media played a big role in this because one thing you notice when you head over to any of his social media profiles is how engaged he is with his followers. Basically, write a comment and you will get a response. It's not just being friendly and responsive, though. Brendan's character and online presence is something tangible that resonates with other writers. Add to that a story that's easy to capture in a few words and understand in a few seconds – And I would argue Brendan is one of the most brandable neo-pros around, at least at the pro-continental level, which is a rapid turnaround from being totally unknown two short years ago. This shows the power of social media, and this is the age we are living in. In other sports, scouts and feeder programs are looking for an individual that can become a brand themselves and hence be marketable and therefore profitable. In pro cycling, when we think of these types of individuals, who do you think about? Maybe it's Fabian Cancellara or Mark Cavendish. i got two riders in mind that stand out when you think of the pro peloton. Can you guess them? In 100 years, what do you want people to remember you by? In, in 100 years, I'm not going to pretend. Not 1,000, just 100. Okay, now it's completely it's, different. Yeah, because I mean, in hundred years, when people the impact that you've had is exponential in the world of cycling. And right. Every year it becomes bigger, and so by in like a thousand years, it'll be like there'll be like malls and stuff. In a thousand years, there'll be countries named after me. Yeah, for sure. It, possibly the planet. Um, <laughs> yeah, the people. <laughs> planet. I think the people. I think the the people of Phil Earth. Um, in Earth. in a hundred years, <laughs> I think the people of Phil Earth will. Will remember me for um, for my, my contributions to science. Um, <laughs> when I uh, 
<laughs> when I develop the, the gas alternatives and, and all the cars are just running uh, on, on chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> That'll be, I think, I think that's what I'll mostly be known for, the, the chocolate chip powered cars that save the world. Of course, that's Phil Guyman. When I think of Phil Guyman, I think of a funny, clean, cookie-eating, hard-working underdog that made his way through the ranks after a late start and survived by hustling on and off the bike. And yes, I learned all of this via social media. Phil's a great example because he's um, he's very engaging on his Twitter and obviously he's written a book that's um, had quite a bit of reach and a lot of people have read it. I actually bought his book and read it while I was racing against him in Tour of Utah. And <laughs> it's quite funny actually, I kept telling him every day where I was up to and what I thought of it. For the second one, I'm going to make it a little harder and let his girlfriend do the talking. He's so simple that he's so complicated, but uh, I love the way he is. He's just amazing. I think the Tour de France wouldn't be the same without to be honest, because it's not because of the green jersey, it's not because of, uh, of his complexity as a rider, it's because of his nature. Like, he's so fun to be with that the uh, tour is very colorful because of him. And of course, it's Peter Sagan, the unlucky but lucky larrikin that's full of surprises on and off the bike and can ride a bike like nobody else in the peloton. And same again here. Racing might capture some of his antics, but it's the social media that highlights and reinforces his actions. Peter Sagan being really, you know, the way he conducts himself and he's, he's quite friendly and playful and he's a little bit less professional, should I say. Like, you know, he absolutely, Peter Sagan is 100% professional and he, he rides his bike to the best of his ability and he conducts himself really well. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not serious when he's having a bit of fun and, um, and, and you see there's a lot of people that enjoy that and there's a lot of people like spectators that always comment about how, how fun it is to watch Peter Sagan and, and how great he is for the sport. These guys definitely have personal branding down. But one question that I think about is can you spend too much time on this? Does it actually take away from your writing? Brendan doesn't seem to think so. I would argue that I've got, you know, a lot of downtime in the afternoons and stuff. So for me to be um, engaging or active on Strava or Instagram or Facebook or something like that, it's not, it's not too difficult. I think we have to check back with this one. As the demands of the sport increase, as Brendan rises through the ranks, we might see some drop-off from him. I hope not, but it will be interesting to follow along. He certainly doesn't plan on stopping anytime soon, and why would he after all social media has done for him? I mean, obviously taking the step up to professional continental next year will be big for me. There'll be more race days, more travelling. But, you know, that's that's all exciting, and that means there's more things to post about, I suppose. So, yeah, I mean, the focus is obviously on riding my bike and making sure I'm doing that to the best of my ability, um, and I don't believe doing anything on social media takes away from that. So it's definitely something that I want to keep working on and improving and and letting people um, see what what I'm up to and and where I'm going and, and everything like that.
Brendan is a new breed of writer. One that looks at social media as an opportunity, not a threat. I don't see someone that's super strategic about it either. There's nothing forced in Brendan's approach. He sees the level of transparency that social media allows as a way to be genuine and connect with other people, whether they're team managers or everyday cyclists. What we might not appreciate, though, is without social media and the technology that's available today, Brendan might not even have been writing because it was social media that got him writing more in the first place. Strava's always played a big role in, in my writing and I would argue that it's it's been highly motivating for me and it's, it's probably the tool um, at the very start that got me um, riding a lot more and, and, and really interested and, and excited to go out and ride my bike. It's safe to say that Brendan didn't have a plan when he started writing, let alone when he joined Strava or any other social media platform. Even when his cycling results started to come, social media was just a way of connecting with other cyclists and influencers and was more about being social than strategic. What social media and today's technology has enabled Brendan to do is extend his reach and share his story in new ways, ways that meet people where they are and funnily enough appeal to the social side of the online world. Brendan's online road to success is only possible right now and that's what's exciting about it. New technology is a new opportunity that anyone can take advantage of. If you're an aspiring pro, maybe this will give you some ideas of what you can do outside of your cycling. If you're a fan of the sport, why not follow Brennan on Instagram or Strava or both and take the ride with him as he moves towards World Tour? Why? Because he's more than willing to share it with you. Time once again for The Radar, the segment of the show where we find the stories behind the promise of performance enhancement. Well, it began by the few, you know, dozen or so people that I cycle with. A number of them struggle with, you know, and they often make the wrong move when shifting gears. This is Ennio, Senior Vice President of Baron Controls, talking about the problem of changing into the wrong gear. And if you cycle yourself, you probably find yourself going up when you should have gone, gone down and, or the other way around. And with electronic shifting, it actually amplified the errors because you, it's so easy to shift that you often find yourself going the wrong way. With a mechanical shifter, you, because it takes such an effort and such a, such a, a large movement, uh, you, you almost catch yourself making an error. Whereas with electronic shifting, it's a simple push of a button and very tactile sensitive. You, you can often make mistakes and you find yourself going the wrong way. I'm curious, do you have this problem? Has it been amplified with the introduction of electronic gears? Honestly, I'm not so sure this is a major problem for experienced cyclists, but it was this problem that they were trying to solve that led to an interesting discovery. So we we thought, well, can we improve that? And once we started playing with it and found that we could control it, we then stumbled on the fact that having automatic shifting and being able to keep you in a certain band of performance all of a sudden, we get improved performance overall. That's, I think, the, the discovery and, and the golden chestnut that we, just, that we found in doing this. This is a much more interesting angle because the possibilities of automatic shifting on a bike seem to be endless. 
This automatic shifting product hasn't been long in the making, maybe 12 months or so. And compared to how long electronic shifting has been around, around six years at this point, I'm surprised it hasn't been done before. There was the Prius Pali concept bike. What we did is we took some off-the-shelf technology, you know, a, a neuro headset, um, really available. What we did is we also took an electronic shifting system, kind of, really it's a hack. Um, you know, we look at the, the brain waves, people are training themselves to say shift up or shift down. We take that, uh, we can shift the bicycle up and down. Once we have all that information, I mean, we can do all kinds of things. You know, we, we create automatic transmission, we can display, you know, what gear you're in. Or, you know, if we have GPS coordinates, we could say, oh, you know, every time you're here, let's shift to this because that's what you did before. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ways to expand on this. But brainwave shifting, even now, four years after the Prius Pali concept bike was created, is a little too radical for our humble bikes. In comparison, this product called the BioShift seems to have arrived at just the right time. Imagine having a bike, whether it be uh, a time trial, a road bike, uh, or any other bike for that matter, hand cycle included, that has electronic shifting made by Shimano, uh, known as the DI2 system. Uh, Shimano makes five different electronic systems. So for the five systems that range from road to time trial to leisure and then finally to mountain biking, we have developed a ProShift controller that can interface to each one of those and control the gearing automatically. In fact, we don't actually have to imagine anymore. The little black box that controls the shifting right now replaces your bike computer and it might not even stay in this form. Well, you, you may not see that black box in the future. It may not be necessary. So that's, the, I'm gonna, and that's all I'm going to say about what we're working on. It's going to be very, very interesting what we do next. This might be a good thing. Why? Well, I was a little cheeky in asking this, but when you see the product, you'll understand why. Don't take this the wrong way, but is there any plans to make it look better? <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course there is. Of course there is. The, 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 the problem is, uh, it's an expensive step, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, so our 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 corporate strategy, right or wrong, is let's focus on the benefits that it derives. And if we can prove to ourselves that those benefits can be realized and they exist, then we will jump in both feet and make the product look slicker and better. The point being. It's not the looks that hold the key to BioShift's performance. I couldn't help asking though, but unsurprisingly, the value is all in the software. More specifically, the algorithms the Baron controls are developing to control gearing from the box. Currently, there's a bunch of modes already in use. Modes such as manual mode, efficiency mode, standing up mode, optimal mode, fixed power mode, max power mode, fixed RPM mode, fixed heart rate mode. So to give you an example, fixed power mode, this is when you set a target power and you just sit on it. It will optimize your gearing so you can hold that target power. Same thing for a max power, it won't allow you to go over a max power. Same thing for fixed heart rate. It'll try and keep you at a fixed heart rate by optimizing your gearing. From what I understand, though, this is just the beginning of what's possible. And Barrett Controls are stepping over the mechanical line into the world of physiology. For example, they've implemented something they call fatigue factor. 
I'll let Inyo explain what it is. A warning though, he mentions a study they did, but maybe he minced his words up a little because it was a one-person experiment, and for me, this really can't be called a study. We have one completed study now where we had this one cyclist use automatic shifting at a fixed course for a fixed duration, but he did it over, I, I forget if it was 10 or 12 times. Each time he went out, we gave him a different set of parameters. And for each ride, we calculated something that we call a fatigue factor. So imagine now a graph that says, under these parameters, you fatigue at this rate. Under those parameters, you fatigue at that rate. And then the graph shows what's called an optimum. In other words, if you set the parameters or a certain condition, you fatigue the least. And we have hard evidence that that kind of correlation exists for, for this particular rider. Now, we think that that kind of a graph is specific to each person. Like, you and I would not likely have the same optimum. But each of us will have an optimum, and our goal is to use ProShift to find what that optimum is. When once we know it, we program it in. And in competition, the cyclists will always be at the optimum condition. This fatigue factor moves into interesting territory. You start competing with the big guns in the physiology space, including Dr. Skiba and his W Prime, or Dr. Andy Coggan and his functional reserve capacity. But to Enio's credit, he's not approaching it from the same angle, nor does he profess that they are pretending to be physiologists, because they are engineers after all. Their confidence, though, is really encouraging. We're not here to profess that we, we are doctors of physiology. We're not. But, what, but simple rudimentary control, though, allows us to measure fatigue. It's an easy, it's not, fatigue is not a very difficult thing to, to, to develop. Uh, and we have what we think is a way to, develop, to, to uh, calculate that and determine what we think is the optimum. And you know what? When we put that back on the bike and the cyclist goes out, it seems like he feels better. In other words, it, it, it fits it, the conditions and, and it fits his capability. So we're getting, uh, again, somewhat preliminary and anecdotal, yes, but it seems like that works as, uh, together. We can control, therefore we can optimize and be positioned to be always at the optimum. Enio brings up a great point here. We've spoken about modes and fatigue factors, but I'm sure by now you just want to know the performance benefits. And have they been proven? The short answer is no, but don't rule it out just yet. I pushed Enio for hard proof that it improves performance, and being so early in the product's development, they simply don't have it. Here's a list of what might make you faster. Well, some might make you faster, others are just nice to have. Number one, uninterrupted riding of steady state work. Number two, you can ride a predictable power load. Number three, you can stay aero. Number four, no fumbling with gears when you have bulky gloves on. And number five, times when you're riding all out, you don't have to think about the gears or a coach can dictate a specific gear and you don't have to think about the gears. Like any training tech, you still have to ride your bike. But it's the optimization of gearing and not having to think about it that are the standout features for me. This and the future possibilities. I'm going to leave the last words to Enio because I think he sums it up nicely. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the effort of the writer is irreplaceable. There's nothing we can do electronically 
to stimulate him to put out 300, 400, or 200, or 100 watts. You know, it, it was, it, you know, the level of effort is between him and what is, is writing history and coach is, is asking him to achieve. For example, let's suppose I know that I'm going to run the Kona Triathlon, and, and I've been training for it, and I know that if I put out 220 watts, for the duration, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish fine. I'm not gonna finish exhausted. I'll have energy left for my for my run. Uh, uh, so so most triathletes will go out and do that race in manual control, but they will try to achieve the 220 watts because that's what they believe will be the best for them at the end of the ride. Well, let's suppose now we impose on this particular cyclist the additional feature of shifting automatically for him. We would then put him always in right gear, and then he would maintain that certain load. At, and, and what we find, and this again, somewhat anecdotal, but what we, what we find is, towards the end of the ride, he doesn't feel nearly as exhausted as he would otherwise. This is the news section, and well... I feel like I have to apologize because we have been a little behind schedule with getting shows out. I can't say it's for lack of trying, but for some reason, it's been a comedy of errors and there's been a whole bunch of things happening, cancellations, booking conflicts, being pushed back, blah, 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 blah. I don't want this to be a section of the show that just turns into a long rant, though. So let's talk about some cool things that are happening in the background and will appear in a show very soon. We're working on expanding the reach of the show and adding some local reportage on hot topics in different areas of the world. This is going to be done via Threshold City Correspondence. We have some great people lined up and they're ready to take us through issues that are happening in their part of the world, which may be your part of the world. And I can't wait to share these stories with you. So keep an ear out for those in upcoming episodes. I'm jumping here in the end because I forgot to reveal the secret to a popular Instagram account. The secret is donuts. Well, not donuts per se, but food. People seem to love food pictures. Yeah, I think it's to do with food, actually. I don't know why. That seems to be a popular trend. Like Phil Gaiman and his cookies is really popular. But I know there's quite a few others. That there's there's a couple of female, local female cyclists that are really good on social media, and one of them is like a the search for the best brownie, and that's like one of her hashtags is like best brownie or something. And um, she's always posting photos of her eating brownies from different cafes and stuff. So what food is Brendan searching for? You guessed it, donuts. I am a huge fan of donuts. So like I can tell you which. Which bakeries nearby are good value for money? Which ones have good jam donuts? Which ones do good chocolate ones and stuff? Which and there's a little bit of a, I suppose, a following there. So anytime I post a photo, guys always typically comment on it and, and stuff. I'm hoping for big boxes. There's um, shortstop donuts. There's, there's like a new thing, a trend of like high-end gourmet donuts that are taking off in the CBD. And unfortunately, like I don't really head in there too often, so I don't buy them. But if anyone's listening and they want to send out some uh, some nice donuts, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't hesitate to eat them. Threshold is hosted by Damian Rose, produced and mixed by Jacob Staley. Our theme music is K Eyes by Hope, and our ad music is Spring Solstice by Puddington Beer, both used under Creative Commons. For more episodes, go to semiprocycling.com slash podcast. I'm Damien Roos. Thanks for listening. <laughs>